Okay, so back to the creed. I think we made it to the point that he descended into the dead. And, and remember, the earlier version said he descended into hell. Um, in a gosh, I better start over. How does it go? Yeah, here we go. Is it in, in accordance with the scriptures? Oh, man. Any of you blank on the creed? One day I was singing the Sursum Corda, and the third line wasn't in there. It is right to give God thanks and praise. It wasn't printed, and I was like, I had to start over in my head. I was like, just everybody, hang on. The Lord be with you, also with you, lift up your heart. Oh, I told you I started putting things in my calendar, like grief card, right? Uh, anniversary of surgery. I, this was really important. Terry's looking it up. Let's see. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So we talked really briefly about sitting at the right hand of the Father and ascension into heaven. Of course, I think it's important to remember um, in some ways that the creed represents a worldview we don't have. We don't believe in a three-tiered universe where up is heaven and down is hell and we live in between. We do believe in that symbolic universe that we very much understand. I mean, most people on the face of the planet, not all, share that reality, which is why the pyramids are telling you look up, right? The pharaohs go up. Um, so the idea, though, that I think is that we come back to, and it's sort of the thing we celebrate on Ascension Day, is that the physical body of Jesus, and what do you know, since we're talking about grief, with wounds, the wounds don't go away, and that body goes into heaven, which is sort of like symbolically completing the whole image, that God comes down to earth, and then earth comes up to heaven. That is, God fully assumes our humanity. That's a pretty powerful statement. Like I told you, in, in the Hindu religion, there's the avatars, but the avatars don't hurt. They don't bleed, they don't suffer, they don't die. And so not only does Jesus die as God incarnate, but the body ascends. And again, this sort of completes, completes the cycle, if that makes sense. More than anything, it, it represents God fully being with us. Um, seated at the right hand, I think I mentioned this last week, is this uh, symbol that Arius uses to say, look, Father's in the throne and Jesus is in the chair next to. But again, symbolically, right hand is the favored position, left hand is the unacceptable position. So, so in code speak, in code speak, this is saying that the eternally wounded body of Jesus is not something God puts up with, it's something that God favors. I don't know if that makes sense, but I find that very helpful to think through, right? Sometimes we think, oh, you know, this whole crucifixion resurrection was just God's plan, God's plan B, and in some ways the creed is saying, well, it's plan A. <laughs> God favors that plan, not puts up with it. Maybe I'm over-reading it, but I don't think so. Um, he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and God's kingdom will have no end. We say the quick and the dead, I think, don't we? In the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, so um, 
course, there's this understanding, and you'll hear about it this morning in the scriptures when we get to the last reading. It's such a weird reading to start Advent with, I think. But, but about how the hope, the Christian hope, is that Jesus is coming back now. So having been glorified, Jesus is coming back to bring the fullness presence of God to us, right? And, and I want to say that as a little boy, um, I heard that a, a certain way, and, and maybe it's helpful to remind you that the most successful um, uh, novel ever penned is not Harry Potter. <laughs> it's the Left Behind series. Isn't that something? Uh, and that series was the faith I got, which is, don't be left behind, because God's going to punish you big time. When God comes again, uh, all our enemies are going to suffer and be punished. Make sure you're not one of those enemies. <laughs> Make sure you're faithful enough. And so in some ways, what we got was an image of Jesus' coming back being really scary. You hear that word, judge? And of course, what we thought is that God would judge us like we judge each other, which is really um, not well. <laughs> you know, you ever, you ever find yourself um, supplying motives to people that they themselves did not supply? Like, they didn't say hello to me this morning when I said hi. What a jerk. <laughs> they did that on purpose because they knew my puppy died. Have you, I mean, have you ever found yourself thinking these things that are crazy? John Newton said something interesting when he came. The human brain actually doesn't care about facts at all. What it cares about is generating a coherent story, even if it's not factual. Our brains want to make cause and effect out of things that have nothing to do with each other including that. Um, so I think it's interesting to think what God's judgment will look like. <laughs> will it look like the local magistrate's judgment? And there's this neat scripture this morning in Isaiah that basically talks about how people are really bad, but good thing God isn't. <laughs> it's, and I don't want to over-rosify this, but, you know, um, it, it is interesting to think, you know, that, that any time, um, gosh, there's that great hymn that represents this, too. Um, I only want to, what is the one? Thy dross, thy something, thy dross is a dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You know that one? Ye servants of God, dun-dun-dun, that one. And it's something like, I only want to, to burn your dross up and your gold to refine. I'm not actually interested in destroying you, just the parts that aren't you, actually. <laughs> it's an interesting hymn, um, and, and I wonder if, if we don't have an option in the creed to, to reconsider what, jo what God's judgment looks like. Because the question is, if God's kingdom is going to have no end, does it end, does it end, does God's kingdom end with people who have a certain quality of faithfulness in their lives, or does God's kingdom really not end? In some ways, it's an oxymoronic thing. God will come to judge the living and the dead, and, and, and God's kingdom will have no end. So if God's kingdom has no end, are there any people excluded from it? I mean, I think that's a great question to ask. Or... Is God like capricious monarchs who has people down in the dungeon? So 
God's kingdom has no end for people in the dungeon and for people at the party. I mean, this is an option. So if God's kingdom is unending and includes all, and I think then we have to ask then what does God's judgment look like? I'm positive this is why people believe made up purgatory. Because it lets everybody in after they've paid their dues. <laughs> it lets human justice exist with God's justice. You know? A lot of people, myself included, don't like the idea that God's going to take you to heaven no matter what you do. <laughs> In fact, there's a spiritual, do you know this one? It's um, a lot of people talking about heaven, not everybody going. <laughs> do you know this one? That's a spiritual. Of course, you know who that spiritual was aimed at, don't you? That was aimed at the people in the fields, right, <laughs> who were making them work, and they sang that song. And those slave masters were blithely unaware that that spiritual was an indictment against them. <laughs> or maybe they were aware, but what can you say? Stop singing that song about God. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting way to think about protesting something, right? But I, but I think this issue of justice is really, is, is, is really key and, and what God's kingdom looks like. And, and I'd even put forward to you that, that, you know, I told you that Constantine ultimately doesn't really want to be a, um, he really wants to be an Aryan heretic because God's in charge and Jesus is subordinate and he's the emperor and everybody's subordinate, right? So if God's like earth, then he's justified as the emperor. But, you know, when we think about kingdoms, of course, they're pyramid schemes, aren't they? <laughs> do you know a kingdom that's not a pyramid scheme? What do I mean? There's like the king, and then there's like the prince, and there are the princesses that are a little lower than that. And then there's like the dukes, and the earls, and the marquises, and the petty nobility, and the people whose ancestors were knights, but they're poor now. And then there's like, well, that middle class, and then there's the sharecroppers, and then there's just the abject slaves. That's how kingdoms work, isn't it? Anybody? <laughs> I, I don't actually know a kingdom that's ever existed that runs like that, where there's one above everybody even, you know? I don't know one like that. I guess you could say, hey, despotic countries run like that, where the despot is above everybody, but not really. You know, there's corrupt customs officials, and, and there's, you know, for every Lenin, there's a Trotsky, and there's a Stalin, who have some influence in, in, in the petty nobility, right? I think it's worth wondering whether God's economy works like that. <laughs> of course, it's really easy to say the saints are the petty nobles in the kingdom of God. Of course, I wonder, though, really, if, if, um, if God's, again, if God's economy works like that. Are people better than each other in heaven? I just want to go back and tell you, as a young boy, every good thing you do for the Lord earns you a jewel in your heavenly crown, and those will be dispensed publicly. 
is what I got. That's why you do good works. You don't want to be embarrassed that you just only got in and you don't get much of a crown, you know. Uh, but, but, I, but I also want to remind you, the scripture goes on to read that the first thing you do with that crown is throw it at the feet of Jesus so nobody wears crowns in heaven. Well, if nobody wears crowns, not even Jesus, then does God's economy just look like that? Well, actually, it might look different even now. It seems like Jesus says, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. So the greatest person is the one who upholds the most. <laughs> That's sort of the opposite of a, of a kingdom scheme that I think we're, we're used to. And that's one of those funny things, right, is that we use these words like kingdom and crown and heaven, and they, they, they certainly mean something, but in general it seems like Scripture is trying to subvert what they mean in our heads. Creating this double entendre between how we water concepts down and how they could actually water us up. <laughs> so to speak. I'm not telling you how it is. I'm just, I just want to tell you what's interesting about the creed, because there's a lot of people that don't like it, and I'm often one of those people, is that there's ambiguities. And, and are they intentional? I don't know, but the language itself is very prone to reconsidering. If God's kingdom like that has no end, it redefines everything else. What God's justice looks like, what the incarnation was for, what God's ascension to the right hand, Jesus' ascension. It wasn't Jesus sitting down here. In some ways, it was Jesus sitting down there. <laughs> and and the, the, the key spokesperson for the creed was Athanasius. Maybe you've heard of him. He has an even longer creed in the prayer book. But Athanasius said, God became a human so that humans could become gods. I don't like that phrase, but I think the idea is this one, that God comes down to serve to lift us up. That word I don't like, it's called apotheosis. Do you know it? Apotheosis. There's a picture in, um, I think it's on the rotunda, the apotheosis of George Washington. <laughs> do, you, do you know this? Anybody seen it? This is where George Washington becomes a god. It, it's in, like in the Capitol building. Yeah. You can read about it in Dan Brown's book, one of them. Um, I mean, Dan Brown's nutty, but, but the painting does exist. You can go home and look at it, the apotheosis of George Washington. Yeah, anyway. Any comments on that, or is that just me being weird? Sometimes I just tell you these weird things, and I, I wonder, I just, I just, well, anyway. I think that's fair. I think a circle's fair. Because in some ways, no point is really above or below another one. I think the reason I, I wanted to gravitate to a line is because if you lay this on a coordinate axis, there are pieces that are positive-positive and positive-negative. And that's confusing for me as a coordinate geometrist, you know, because most of the engineering that I'm familiar with is coordinate geometry, not plane geometry. Yeah, and again, you know, if you, when... I think it's a great concept in plane geometry, right? When you think about what the figure means, I think the problem is when you lay out a sphere, this is a tough one. You, in a sphere, now there's eight octants, 
and only one of them is triple positive. <laughs> now, I'm just telling you this because I'm just silly. And of course, I want to exist in octant one. And I know other people, God love them, are in octant five. <laughs> God loves them. Nobody else does. <laughs> ah, that's so good. You can translate the origin. Sure, you can. Um, actually, if you, since you said that, you know, as a, as a geometry teacher, um, do you know humans are creating the image and likeness of God? That image word is interesting because the image is what you get when you take the pre-image and you dilate it, rotate it, reflect it. All right. So it's funny. We're in some ways to think about humanity being the image of God geometrically is that whatever God started with could have been rotated, dilated, reflected a bunch, a bunch of times. It doesn't mean it looks much like what it started with. <laughs> you know what I mean? It'd be much better if we were created in the pre-image of God, which would mean they would just look the same. Sorry, that was weird. That's my, my little math background coming out. Kathy, I think a ring is a great idea. Sure, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, you know, it is a good idea. In, and, and, and you could actually do that with a triangle as long as it's a, a right, as long as it's an equilateral triangle, right, then all of these are congruent and all of those are congruent and all the angles are congruent. Yeah, I mean, the, I'm sorry to be such a, such a loser because this has problems too. <laughs> the truth is any analogy we settle for has limits. And we just have to remember that, I think, because when we say there's no limits is when we've created an idol. And in some ways, it's helpful, I think, to move from image to image so that we don't settle too hard. Yeah, and then there can also be the hierarchy of the source of the light, too. You know, I always was thinking about how we went to Vod Yashem in Israel, and it's a memorial to the, like the million children who were killed in the Holocaust. And it came from two light sources and like a million mirrors, basically, not that many, but there, there were literally a million points of light generated from two, it was sort of an interesting thing, really interesting thing. And it had to do with reflections and, and, and in some ways rotations. It's a really fascinating thing. Anybody been to that one, the Vod Yashem? It's, it's strong. It's probably the strongest memorial I think I've ever been to. You know, it's, it's really, really a strong one. Um, okay, hey, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit not next week, because I'm celebrating a wedding next week in Oregon. So I won't be here. So just take the morning off whew, in the true Advent spirit. Just let your hair down, have a donut, wear some blue. And, uh, and in two weeks, we'll wear our rose color that Kathy's modeling for you today. That's not pink in the Episcopal Church. That's rose. And, um, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in two weeks. Thanks for being here. <laughs>